Thanks for listening to The World We Deserve, the officially unofficial podcast for HBO's True Detective Anthology, brought to you by Bald Move. This conversation covers Season 1, Episode 2, titled Seeing Things. From the dusty mesa, her looming shadow In 1995, friction between the two detectives increase as Hart's extramarital affair impacts his work and home life, while Cole deals with hallucinations stemming from drug abuse during his years doing undercover narcotics work. Their investigation into the murder of Dora Lang takes them to a hillbilly bunny ranch where they find Lang's diary containing numerous cryptic references to Carcosa, a yellow king, as well as a flyer for a church Lang was known to attend. Following up on the flyer lead, they locate a burned-out and gutted rural church where they discover disturbing artwork depicting a naked woman wearing antlers. Meanwhile, pressure mounts to turn over the investigation to a special police task force formed to combat anti-Christian crimes, which is spearheaded by the Reverend Billy Lee Tuttle, a powerful religious figure with family ties to the governor of Louisiana. In 2012, Rust reveals to detectives questioning him that his young daughter was killed in an accident that destroyed his marriage and caused him to seek out the dangerous work of a deep undercover narcotics officer, which led to years of substance abuse, a fatal shootout, and being committed to his psych ward before rejoining the force as a homicide detective. Okay, Aaron, we just watched the second episode of the season. What did you think of it? It was... Interesting because I feel like the first episode was all about setting up the dark side of Rust and setting mm-hmm. up Marty as being like the everyman family figure, father figure. And this episode is all about confirming some suspicions we had about him and showing kind of the dark side of that. Yeah, and I, I it, feel like it was it was kind of bringing them both to a, a similar level of characterization because the first episode, we don't get much of Marty at all. Right. right? He's essentially the foil for Rust. Yeah. So now we get we get the deeper side of Marty here, and it doesn't look like it's all good. No. Um, like it maybe kind of did in the first episode. For people playing the kind of like the true detective of one of these guys is the bad guy, the, mud, the waters are a lot muddier. Oh, yeah. Because Rust seems like, at all else, Rust strikes me as this very tightly controlled person. And I okay. think they showed like, you know, when Rust uh, grabs him by his collar and threatens him about, you know, him taking, making impertinent observations about, uh, the smell or lack thereof of pussy on, and Marty, uh, you know, Russ responds by like threatening to break his arms and he had this tense standoff. And then as soon as it's over, Marty goes, stomps off. What's Russ do? Starts counting his breath and pulse rate. <laughs> like, sure. And you know, it's tied into the stuff that we learn about him in this episode about his past. You know, he was sure. in the, uh, what is it, high-intensity drug trafficking area or something yeah, like yeah, that? Yeah, 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 And uh, he was undercover for the years. The H-I-D-T-A, high-intensity drug trafficking area. Yeah, and we can tell that that was a super harrowing experience for him. And sure. you can imagine that that he probably had moments where he lost control there. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of a coping mechanism um, that he developed during that time. Yeah, like he, it's his personal red line. Okay. Like, am I still because yeah. because he's apparently and maybe appropriately terrified of what might happen? Uh, sure. You know, I, I really like the wire reference when he finds out the detectives don't know about his records and they're still still sealed, and he does the shit <laughs> before he tells the story. <laughs> and there's a lot of other like you know when he's investigating some of these prostitutes, 
And he says to that one, like, I am a dangerous man. I'm police. I can do terrible things with impunity. Sure. But this is also just juxtaposed with Marty and this jealous relationship he has with his mistress. I found it very chilling how controlling he was with this this girl and how, like, really close to some real fury there was down down there, too. Yeah, I mean, I like seeing... You know, that Marty maybe isn't all he pretends to be here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it kind of made me feel after the second episode that I'm more on Rust's side as far as, like, who is the better person here. Yeah. Rust's philosophy, the way he thinks, is completely useless, in my opinion. I mm-hmm. mean, as as is nihilism, I think, in general. But But then you go and you see the practical side of Marty's life, and it's darker, in my right. opinion. You know, right. he's... He's manipulating everyone around him. He believes that his home life should be all about him when he comes home and that his family needs nothing from him uh, and that all of these things he does during the day in his work justify that view. Yeah. And, and that's a very... A, it's very selfish. Yeah. And B, it is dangerous, I feel. Sure. With a guy who is as hot-headed as we see Marty being. The other, dis- I mean, there's just so many dark and disturbing things in this fucking episode. Uh, the first is, you know, Marty is, 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 his justification for the fact that he does things, these things on the side and goes out drinking with his friends and essentially is a terrible father and husband yeah. is that this protects his family from exposure to the terrible things that he does. Because he'd have to, what, come home and just say, oh, my God, I found this woman with a crown yeah, of thorns. And it crazy. To, I mean, I, like, he'd go into his daughter's room where there's a gangbang happening and say, daughter, li- well, listen to all this so that happened to work today. I'm not unsympathetic because I can't imagine having a job sure. like this and then having to come home and shift into, look at my pink pony and yeah. look at these cool drawings I did, daddy. But... It shows that like a lot of this stuff, whatever he's trying to do is all in vain because whatever what are his daughters doing but reenacting a horrific <laughs> sexual violence crime scene uh, with their with their yeah that's how I read it. Now, there's a couple ways to look at this. One is they know enough about their dad's job that this is essentially you know Rust and Kin investigating a murder scene. Uh-huh. There's a darker one that suggests that these are men that are taking sexual. Uh, advantage uh, and sexually assaulting this 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 uh, this doll that's in the middle. Which which way do you break down on that? I lean toward the latter. I, I think there's enough in this episode about you know prostitution and uh, the controlling nature of of males as relates to that specifically that profession and and many other aspects of the female life uh, that I think it's definitely the latter. Okay. What did you think when we met the mother of uh, uh, Dora Lang? She is a really disturbing case. Um, She's been working around chemicals our life. Her fingernails are falling out. Uh, She looks terrible. Uh, She's got headaches. It seems like the headaches are conveniently (laughs) triggered by trying to recall anything about her daughter. Uh, She's very defensive about the... Or they're faked in order to not have to say anything about her daughter. Like, I'm, I'm... up in the air on that. And and also the fact that, uh, you know, she's very defensive about the relationship their father or her husband had with, with Dora. Because mm-hmm. she says, I mean, they don't really follow up, which I thought was interesting. I thought it was really weird they didn't follow up on two things. One was, why wouldn't the father bathe his daughter? Okay. Okay, yeah. well, how old was the father? How old was the daughter? And what kind of bathing <laughs> was going on? Uh-huh. Uh, how old was, yeah, how old was the daughter? 
Also, the daughter is shown in the midst of like these happy kind of kid pictures of her standing there with like a dark Ku Klux Klan lineup. There's what these the dudes hell? on horses with these black robe with the huge dunce caps on their heads. I mean, we we do know, and no one says anything about it. There's do, no like, what the fuck is this? We do know that Rust Cole is an anagram for horse cult. So. I mean, I don't know what to make of that, but it's there. Discuss that in the smelling a psychosphere section of last episode. Uh huh. Um, yeah, I cannot believe that no one followed up on a little bit deep. Now, maybe it's just because the the headache started and all that shit. But still, yeah. I mean, we at least see Rust noticing it, right? Yeah, yeah, and it probably got into his taxman ledger. Who yeah. knows? So we're talking about being on Rust's side versus Martin's side. Mm-hmm. We find out Russ's backstory, and it's pretty tragic. You know, there's something that happened. You know, I've, I've been mentioning about the parallels between the support group scenes in Breaking Bad and here in True Detective. And I feel like there's a lot of commonality because there's something involving his daughter, which I feel like is is very young, like under, you know, three years old on a tricycle and something about a, a blind curve or something in their neighborhood. And then he kind of trails off and apparently she was, I don't know, ran over or what, but she went in a coma and died. So there's one immediate question when I'm trying to reconcile this with the last episode we discussed, when Russ hallucinates what we thought was his daughter, who looked like she was in the 9 to 12-year-old range wearing starter bra and panties. That kind of confuses me now. Yeah. Like, was he hallucinating what his daughter would look like? Or also this Could episode be. makes me think that... It seems like there's just a lot of women, underage women, running around being exploited in this, yeah. in gross situations in this particular location. Like, it's an epifuckendemic of it. Sure. So, are we really convinced that that was a hallucination of his daughter? I don't know. I, I find it hard to really tell what is real and what isn't with Rust. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, I mean, obviously, there are a lot of hallucinations. Actual things that we see that couldn't possibly be taking place. Yeah. Um, like tracers and crows in the sky i suppose yeah. could take when, place when, but it's super convenient that they form the spiral that was on her image. back yeah and i'm pretty sure just the, the 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 sky doesn't turn to strawberry jam just randomly no i've never seen it <laughs> i mean i've i've been to new orleans but i haven't got out into deep louisiana country i don't know Night, nights get awful jammy when you're down yeah. in louisiana well you know it's a chemical filled area right <laughs> yeah right dry cleaning sure. the whole state gets dry clean once a week it does obsessed yeah. with cleanliness down in the swamps <laughs> Yeah, back then, the visions. Yeah, most of the time, I was convinced that I'd lost it. But there were other times. I thought I was mainlining the secret truth of the universe. I view Russ as a guy who is into logic and reason and the the truth of the universe is not something that would be like perceived with hallucinations mm. um, in his mind, I don't think. What does this say about him and his philosophies and what he actually believes? That, that he's proclaiming that there may be some universal truth that he can tap into. That, that strikes me as like a a very spiritual kind of philosophy for a guy like this to have. 
Well, and there's a or lot even, of or even entertained. There's a lot know? of spiritual trappings with him, like his whole meditation about the cross and him staring into that little, like staring into that little tiny locket mirror at his own eyeball. Like he does. For a man that protests to not believe in anything, he that's, does have a lot yeah. of that like meditative spiritual side to him. That's what I'm getting at. Like more so than Marty those does. Seem, those seem to be a dichotomy, but Russ somehow holds them both at the same time. Um, or at least entertains both of those types of ideas. I don't know. I was very much like Ken Kazada in this. I was like, the, the case is going nowhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rust is lunatic, and I'm losing patience during this episode. <laughs> <laughs> More of the same from episode one. You guys need to move a little bit. And at the end, they find a church with a drawing. Yeah. Where could that possibly lead you? I mean, go, I guess, investigate the church. Well, find out thing. who owned it. Yeah, like, and it's the way it's presented is... It feels like an accidental discovery. They're looking for this tent revival. They don't find it. Yeah. But in the tent revival's back door is this burnt out old church with a creepy fucking owl and these really wild inscriptions um, that look exactly like the Dora Lang murder. It's really creepy. Now, one thing I also want to talk about is like we talked about Rust and how tightly wound he is and how his capacity for danger. And we see that in this episode where he goes back to interrogate the guys about the Hillbilly Bunny Ranch. And he just grabs a toolbox and just goes to town on him. And then uh-huh. comes back without any sign of adrenaline or being perturbed at all. Comes back and like starts giving Marty the Google Maps direction to it. That was really insane. You think before he came out, he did the little uh, fingers to the Probably, neck pulse check thing? Because he might kill Marty if he didn't. <laughs> um, and I also like that you're starting to see how much respect that Marty has in the retrospects. As he's like, they, he alludes to their problems and he goes look you know but say what you will about the man he had some moves he had as sharp as eye for weaknesses i've ever seen and i also thought that that you got to remember this is 2012 marty and i remember watching this the first time and thinking you have a lot of weakness about yourself personally marty so how is this going to then fold back and you know i was still running with the these two men are under investigation currently you know, what? how is that relevant? Russ seemed like too much of a tragic and good figure where all the instability and the true kind of capacity for insanity would rest with Marty. Hmm. Okay, I, I mean, I still find Cole's philosophies disturbing and uh, honestly so far outside of useful that they're pointless. Like, the the concept of just give up and kill yourself is so pointless, right? Mm-hmm. I just feel like there's a lot of darkness and rust still. Sure. Because the things that he's saying... I, okay, so I guess the difference there is that Rust is acknowledging his darkness, mm-hmm. his darker aspects, and mm-hmm. uh, Marty is not. And the potential there is that Marty will do something without realizing what he's doing, whereas Rust seems to be very thoughtful in his actions. Yeah, and also... Uh, I thought it was interesting how what he said to the detectives when he explained why he can have such a nihilist worldview but then still work as a murder police. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, it's like this quote from Corinthians I saw when I was in the psych hospital. The body's not one member but many, and they are many but one body. And I said, I'm just trying to save part of the body. Like I'm, But he thinks the whole body should just stop reproducing and die. I think that's... <laughs> but you got to draw a line Is what he says in the first episode. Your personal... And the other thing is that's 1995 Rust versus 2012 Rust. Yeah. So 2012 Rust seems like he's worse in a lot of ways, uh-huh. but he's also a little bit more 
balanced or he he's not quite as we just need to kill ourselves. Uh, I was reading an article. Um, it was an interview with Matthew McConaughey, and he basically said that there are four different versions of Rust Cole in these different time periods. You got the undercover one, you got the 95 one, you got the 2012 one, you've got another one. Uh, if you're interested, just go search up like four stages of Rust Cole. Okay. Um, and, and you can read through that. I don't want to dig too deep into spoiler territory there. Right. But it's, it's really interesting the way that he broke down those distinct stages uh, and, and portrayed them on screen. Uh, the relationship with Marty and his family is so much darker in this episode. Like you see him at the the in-laws and the contrast with his father-in-law who thinks the problem is the world is the world of people standing up for the rights and goth kids wearing eyeliner. And sure. you can see this is slowly driving Marty crazy. But on the other hand, it seems also pretty clear that Marty is trying to use this weekend retreat as an excuse to go see his mistress. And his wife is on to him. Doesn't seem like she knows. There's no smoking gun or smelly fingers in Marty's case, but that <laughs> uh-huh. she's got a lot of deep suspicion about why he's withdrawn yeah. and not finding her sexually attractive anymore. I can't believe how vicious he gets. Even your mom thinks you're a ball buster. That kind of darkness bothers me a hell of a lot more than like, like darkness and rage turned outward is a lot scarier to me than darkness and rage turned inward. Like in Russ's uh, situation. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, Marty does turn a lot of it inward, but eventually it just bubbles over, you know? Yeah. I mean, I wonder if the same could be true of Cole. Will he hit finally his breaking point? I don't know. There's a lot of great scenes, though, I I really like, where he was just like, how many different ways can I tell you to shut the fuck up? (laughs) Their boss, Ken Kazada. Yeah. You know what he reminds me of? He reminds me of uh, the cop in Die Hard 2, I Mm. think it is, uh, who's just like trying to block... Uh, Bruce Willis at every turn. Okay. Yeah. You remember no. him? He's just like, you're a fucking idiot. Like all the time he's trying to kick him out of the airport, like all this stuff. Yeah. It's really funny. Is that two or is that three? I, I don't I even could, remember. They kind of all run together in my they mind. They do, too. yeah. Like one's the first at the one airport, I know is the tower. one's at the plaza, yeah. and the third one is about uh, Bruce Willis having to say a bunch of unfortunate things in, <laughs> in Harlem, I think. Yeah. But anyway, that's that's who he reminded me of. Okay. It's starting to come down to differences. Like, I really sympathize and identify with a lot of stuff that Russ believes. Uh, I just have a completely different conclusion I, I draw from it. Also, I just feel like Russ makes a lot of sense. If your daughter, your infant daughter, dies in some freak accident and it costs you your marriage, I can see, like, you know, when he talks about the hubris of being a father, to yank a soul out of nothingness and this meat and force him through this meat thresher, that feels right. For that character, yeah. We all do I mean, it that, anyway, but if you really stop and think about it... No, I. if your daughter dies and then you stop and think about it. Yeah. I think that's, that's, that's the thing. conclusion you draw, and that's perfectly well within the characterization of Rust. I don't think that's what a normal person thinks about the is world, it, though. I it, think it is a very scarred, damaged view of the world. Is it the problem that Rust is an outlier and he doesn't... Because most people don't have to, thank God, deal with the death of their children. You know, the expectation is... Yeah. <laughs> You're going to outlive them and they'll have to deal with your death. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. Is it the fact that he is an outlier and then he he wound, he found himself on a path where he just continually met more and more extreme outliers. And now he has, instead of seeing the world as like 95% good people, 4% assholes, 1% monsters, mm-hmm. he sees it as the opposite. Where... 95 percent of uh, uh, 95 of existence is pointless <laughs> like, and then five percent of people are just bedeviled themselves like if he worked at disneyland he might have a 
completely different outlook on life. No, it'd right? be way darker. Okay, well, way okay. That, was a, darker. that was a terrible example. <laughs> Disneyland is the darkest place on earth. He's, uh, he's stuck wearing a goofy costume. It's 120 <laughs> degrees. He's gonna be goofy. There's yes. always always handling kids that are they're gassy and have diarrhea. <laughs> the psychosphere does not smell nearly as good. All right, trapped uh, in that goofy suit. But yeah, I mean, if if he took a different path, if he wasn't constantly exposed to this stuff, reinforcing his opinion, his negative opinion on the world, would he be different? I think that's an interesting question. Um, I think certainly without his daughter's death, he'd be very different. You know, that's the thing that's funny. I was thinking about Russ' character, and I I was like, man, I've seen this character around somewhere. And then I realized it's House. Dr. Oh. Gregory House is roughly the same as Rust Cole. Uh, he's just way more entertaining. And I think that's why I don't like Russ so much, because he's not entertaining. He's just and that's, depressing and shitty all the time. I find him extremely entertaining. Like, I laugh a lot about... You don't find him entertaining. You find the interaction between him and, and Marty entertaining. Yeah, because I, at some level, I think he's amping some of this up to fuck with Marty. who he does, I don't think... You think so? I don't think that... That's the thing. I feel like the Marty respects Rust on a just a technical skills yes. and like mm -hmm. there's a and he backs him up during this investigation too. yeah yeah like even he's like i don't want to give this up even though this guy's probably crazy whereas i mm -hmm. what is your take i don't think i don't think rust respects marty i don't think he respects no. him from a skill set i don't think he respects him from a passion and the way he goes about living his life and from i agree with that taking yeah. for granted the advantage he has i think that's the big the big rub here you're right and I wonder if that will, if, if that's going to be something that we see evolve and change. I don't know. You'll have to sniff that psychosphere to find <laughs> out, man. All right. Drink a bottle of Robitussin. Okay. That sounds like a, that sounds like a plan. Mainline the truth of the universe. <laughs> Okay, time for this week's Smelling the Psychosphere, where we go a uh, little bit of a deep dive, historical, archaeological look at the popular internet theories that were generated by this episode, and kind of look and see, you know, what all the buzz was, and if this is your first time through, kind of help you to get into the, the fun mind state where you're trying to just overanalyze and pull out all the details, and if you're... Uh, this is your second or third trip or, or more through True Detective, then maybe you missed a couple of these. And some of them are amusing red herrings and some of them are crucial to the plot. And I'm not going to tell you which is which. Partially because I don't remember all of them myself and partly <laughs> because uh, that, that'd spoil all the fun. So the final scene in the burnt out church, mm -hmm. there's a lot of scriptures scrawled on the wall. Uh, one of them was Mark 1. Chapter 1, verse 41, the King James Version says, And there came a leper unto him, beseeching him, kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus moved the compassion, put forth his hands, touched him, and said to him, I will thou be clean. The second verse is Judges, chapter 16, verse 30, also from the King James. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might. And the house fell upon the lords and upon the people that were therein. 
So the dead which he slew at his death were more than that which they slew in his life. You might be asking, what the hell does this have to do with anything? Note the resemblance of the poses of the victims to the descriptions of the people in the verse. Uh, Dora Lang's pose is the story of a leper begging for cleansing. She's on her knees with her hands in a supplicating position. The latest victim that they're investigating in 2012 is tied with their hands braced like against the bridge pillars resembling Samson when he was using his might to take down the supports and kill all the Philistines. Okay. So because of the themes in both of the Bible verses in, in Mark and Judges, that it's a theme of someone wanted to be cleansed and then Samson uh, cleansing or purifying uh, the land of Philistines, mm-hmm. uh, people are thinking that this could be a cult motivation. Um, and also that that leads to perhaps the women being willing victims of the cult mm-hmm. um, with an emphasis on, you know, quote unquote willing, because we know they're all drugged and uh, seems like they were really heavily indoctrinated too. Uh, this also ties into the thought of Rust Cole mentioning in episode one that he likes to meditate on a person uh, delivering oneself through a crucifixion. So, like, they could have been actually believing that they were, in a way, being saved. Okay. We talked in the main cast about, you know, the staging of the the dolls yeah. and the, whether that's a crime scene or whether that's uh, or whether that's something that the girls might have experienced or seen and how that ties in with with Marty's uh, career. A lot of people had a lot of, you know, those same uh, sentiments and thoughts when they were watching it. There's also a curious theory about Cole being dead the week of the hearts uh, of Marty Hart's interview, because in the chronology of the show, they interviewed Rust first and then Marty. And there's like a week gap in between those two initial interviews. Hmm. And some people said that they found it really bizarre how defensive Hart gets whenever Cole's name brought up. Um, also the current detectives kind of act strangely and give each other sidelines every time his name is mentioned. Well, we do know that their relationship has fallen apart at this point. Sure. Sure. But they're saying that like, it's, it's over the line. Like, you know, say what you want about the man. He was a good detective. Um, he was always referring to him in a past tense, which we also know Rust is no longer on the police force. Yes. No, it makes sense to refer to the past as a past, but it's okay, a, it's a, it's we're smelling the psychosphere. Can you? Oh yeah, you're taking a big deep sniff on this. Can, one. can you smell the aluminum and the rust and the Marty? I mean, if you can, <laughs> if if you can't, you know, I, I can't help you there. Um, some some people then ran with that and said that maybe something happens after Cole's interview, which you know, obviously we're in the middle of, mm-hmm. where Hart has to then shut him up uh, because he's on the trail of something big, or maybe Marty's in on this mm. as of yet unknown conspiracy. Also, there's an interesting police procedural note of the possible, you know, because people are really running wild with this. Uh, maybe Rust is a suspect. Maybe Zamardi's a suspect. Rust requesting alcohol as a way to have his testimony inadmissible. <laughs> okay. Because that's if, you, interesting. if you pound the six pack on film while you're yeah. being taped, then you could argue, like, I was drunk when you said that. Now, there are differences in legal opinion on whether that actually would work or not. But I thought hmm. it was an interesting angle, which yeah. could imply that maybe Rust is a guilty. Okay. I mean, if that's the way you're leaning, I think it could imply that. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So now the big the big whiff of the psychosphere came from the mention of the Yellow King. Oh, and boy. people quickly made the connection to a series of short stories written by Robert Chambers in 1895 
Yeah, it is kind of one of the forefathers of the Cthulhu mythos that yeah. then H.P. Lovecraft went, ran with. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, a lot of people capitalize on this because this book is in the public domain. Amazon had it on the front page. You oh, do yeah. Free download. And people were throwing it up on Amazon for like a dollar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so it, go come buy this free book. Sure, <laughs> sure. I mean, you know, you're going to make 33 cents. You're going to make 33 cents. <laughs> sure. Um, but the I, I looked up some information. I actually own this book, and I read a little bit of it back in the day, but I found it... Similarly to H.P. Lovecraft, be kind of dry and hard to get into. Huh, okay. The basic story here is that there is a play um, that you read and go insane. Exactly. Uh, not not unlike a lot of movies that have been made recently, like right, right. Uh, getting on a telephone and hearing a tone yeah, yeah. that drives you insane or seeing a movie. Sure, like The yeah. Ring or essentially that kind of stuff. And, and uh-huh. I love the lore behind this stuff. I just hate reading the source material. Like, I love reading that and the boiled down essence of the stuff. So yeah. this this King in Yellow is this play that's referred to throughout this entire collection. Um, and Chambers only gives us snippets of the play. Obviously, if he gave us the whole thing, we'd all go insane. Oh, of course, yeah. But it concerns a decaying dynasty in a land called Carcosa, which sits by the Lake Haley. And Carcosa is specifically mentioned in this episode as well. Yes, it is. Um, on a pamphlet, uh, and some of this stuff is conjunction with a yellow religious pamphlet too, which is uh-huh. kind of like, you know, <laughs> that this is really on-the-nose stuff. But anyway, th- one of the snippets of the play is this little like tone poem that says, Along the shore, the cloud waves break, twin suns sink behind the lake, the shadows lengthen in Carcosa. I want to stop right there and show you an image from the episode with the twin suns sunk behind the lake. Now, this isn't the Tatooine okay. system, but what we're seeing here is, you know, there's a lot of pictures of these cat you know i don't know retention ponds or rice paddies or catfish growing facilities or these square rectangular ponds and you see the sun kind of low in the sky and it's reflected in a kind of a darker hue in in the water below i'll post this in the show notes uh under the smelling psychosphere section just just the Mm -hmm. link nothing spoilery for the people that don't want to be spoiled but this further draws you know strengthens the connection to maybe that we are living in a modern day version of carcosa Okay. And we're probably going to be revisiting this poem because it's got four or five other stanzas uh, that I wasn't able to pull any connections, but I think there might be connections forthcoming. So should we be on the lookout for the King in Yellow? I think in, so. In the future. Uh, the other thing is in the mythology of the King in Yellow, there is a yellow sign that he uses to identify his adherents and his followers, which you will recognize if you've ever played a Cthulhu game because it's been co-opted by the H.P. Lovecraft mythology as well. Haven't seen it in this show, as far as I can tell. Haven't seen it in the show, um, okay. but it does bear a very vague semblance to the spiral tattoo marking structure that we've seen on uh, the main victim. Uh, at least that's what the internet, that's what the, okay, psycho, I, that's what I the don't psychosphere is claiming. I don't buy that at all. You Not don't? one bit, no. It doesn't look like a spiral at all. <laughs> you don't? Okay. No. No. It is by it's it's spirally. <laughs> um, also, the owl. This is something that I t- uh, was wondering about um, in the in the main cast, and I did some digging. Oh yeah. Uh, so the one thing I know, uh, I because I, I watched the making of before we actually set on this adventure, and they mentioned that mockingbirds were a constant problem on the set. That they are <laughs> loud as hell, and they kept raptors and owls and other birds of prey on the set. Uh, to okay. kind of keep them at bay. So uh, some people were suggesting, well, maybe it was just an owl left in the frame. Yeah. That doesn't seem very uh, 
true detective to me. The, everything is so staged deliberately that if they didn't want the owl in this frame, someone would have made the owl shoe. The yeah. owl was placed there deliberately. You would think so. But in English literature, a barn owl has a sinister reputation because it's a bird of darkness, and darkness is associated with death. Hmm. But a lot of people suggested that the owl is just a vision that Rust had. And we, I, I didn't have all the evidence in front of me, but Cole doesn't react to the owl because, like he says in this episode, when he sees these visions, he just kind of rolls with them. Uh, okay. So he didn't react. Hart doesn't react to it because he doesn't see it. And it is unusual that you'd have two men just walk right underneath an owl that's a couple feet overhead and not remark about it, especially it's in the middle of the day in this creepy-ass burnt-out church. It also... Yeah, I mean, I, w- I want to, you know... <laughs> I want to throw a little doubt on that. Okay. It's all, it is also possible that this 20-something foot church mm-hmm. is just too high for... It's out of their peripheral. Yeah. You know, they just don't look up there because humans have a tendency not to. Yeah, okay. So traditionally, owls symbolize wisdom. But here's the other connection to this whole King and Yellow Carcosa deal. Mm-hmm. There is a short story written a few years before The King and Yellow by Ambrose Bierce um, that it talks about a man from an ancient city in Carcosa... Uh, who wakes up from being ill and finds himself outdoors in an unfamiliar wilderness. And Robert Chambers then took this Carcosa concept and and made it into his fictional play, The King of Yellow. So here's a synopsis that I found on Wikipedia from from this, this story, The Inhabitant of Carcosa. A man from the city of Carcosa contemplating the words of a philosopher, Haley, concerning the death or the nature of death wanders through an unfamiliar wilderness he knows not how he came there but recalls that he was sick in bed he worries that he's wandered out of doors in a state of insensibility he calms himself as he surveys the surroundings he's aware that it is cold though he does not feel cold he comes across a lynx an owl and a estranged man dressed in skins carrying a torch Sounds should like we, he's dead. Should we be in the lookout for a lynx and a strange man dressed in skins carrying a torch? Sure. I we've already met fair. the we've already met the owl. Yeah. Why not? Uh, the 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 end of the story. The kick is yes, the man is dead, and he's just a ho- a ghost that's sure. haunting the not, land that he grew not up. Not surprising. In. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is what the the psychosphere is smelling. There's not a lot to go on except for a bunch of people spinning off a bunch of random theories about the king in yellow. And also, maybe Marty did it, maybe Russ did it, uh, stuff like that. Yeah, it feels like The King in Yellow is so far the most substantial lead anybody mm-hmm. has in this series. And it's still early on, you yes. know. Got a lot of time to develop this. So, looking forward to, to what comes next. Bald Move depends on your support to create our independent podcast. Find out how you can help out and get lots of great perks such as ad-free podcasts, live video feeds, and other exclusive bonus content at club.baldmove.com. If you'd like to send in your feedback, you can do so by emailing it to truedetective at baldmove.com. You can find all of our content at baldmove.com and participate in our discussion forums. Keep up with our latest release schedules by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter. 